a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Today we are talking about U.S. policing, casualties, and the politics around these topics. For that, I have John Hoyt here. He is the National Second Vice President with the National Fraternal Order of Police, who are previous guests on this show. Always a good time. Uh, Give you a little background on John. He joined the Philadelphia Police Department in 1999. He has worked most of his career in patrol as a police officer, sergeant, and lieutenant, working both uniform and plainclothes duties. He's worked primarily in proactive anti-crime assignments, including the Philadelphia Highway Patrol Unit, the city's primary anti-violent crime task force. During that time, he received many commendations, including the department's highest Medal of Valor. John has a bachelor's degree in business administration, a master's degree in public safety management, and graduated from the Harvard University Law School Trade Union Program. He now holds the rank of captain with the Philadelphia Police Department. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah. um, And I was saying, uh, we've had one guest from the FOP on here before, Joe Gamaldi. So he's the kind of the mutual connection here. Um, He recommended that I talk to you. One question I have right off the bat, though, you're the second national second vice president. So is that like second to Joe or are you equal? Yeah, depends on who you ask. Uh, but uh, so there's two national VPs. Joe's the first, then primary, and then I'm second. And Joe, I was just elected in August, so this is my first term. And Joe's done several, so yeah, and he's doing a great job for us. We love Joe. Yeah, I well, if you watch this uh, social media for the the people listening here, uh, Joe gets right fired up, and I love it. <laughs> we need some emotion like yes, that he does. in Canada. So uh, I love watching his stuff. So it's great. Yeah, Joe's a high energy guy in everything he does. He's you know he lives in Texas now and is with Houston PD, but he's a New Yorker yeah. at heart. So uh, yeah, yeah, he's high energy. <laughs> um, but we'll we'll start off kind of talking a bit about you. Just get some more background. Um, if you could just tell us about yourself, where you grew up, and uh, how you got into policing. Uh, absolutely. So uh, my growing up story is a little unique. Uh, I had two great parents that were, uh, you know, really, really good to me and my brother. I have a brother, a younger brother, and uh, but we moved around a lot. They were free spirits. So growing up, I didn't really grow up in any one place. Uh, eight different schools by the time I graduated high school in, I think, six or seven different states. So different parts of the country, too. Wow. Um, uh, for a while, I lived in, south, in the Southwest. I lived in New Mexico. And from fifth grade till about halfway through high school. And, um, you know, that's as you get older and become a young adult, you start thinking about what you want to do with your life. And that's, that's kind of where I started. In fact, I remember a pivotal point living in New Mexico. Uh, I was a pretty big baseball player and there was an umpire, younger umpire in our league who one day I saw him at my high school. And he was in a Santa Fe Police Department uniform. He was a police officer there. And uh, just always didn't really know him that well, but looked up to him. He was a really sharp individual. And he came in in his pressed uniform and looked real sharp and was helping out. I was like, you know, that's that looks like a good fit for me. You know, uh, uh, you also have to think about the time, right? This is essentially in the 80s when you had, uh, not like today, unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of TV shows and movies and the police were always the good guys and they were smart and they were cunning and, yeah. and were there to help. So I grew up watching that, which uh, I'm sure we'll touch on later is, a, is I think an issue that you don't see that out of Hollywood and TV anymore. So, so, uh, yeah, I saw him, I was really impressed. And as I got older and kind of looked at what did I want to do, you know, I went to college and I went to a business school and got a business degree. But, um, the neighborhood I went to college in a great school, but it was a tough neighborhood. 
and I'd be walking back and forth in class and I'd see the police cruisers flying by lights and sirens. And I could never <laughs> get that out of my head. I was like, man, that looks like fun. Yeah. And, uh, what's funny is years later, I was actually a Lieutenant in that same neighborhood, but so I went out in the corporate world. I did business for a while and it just sitting at a cubicle all day, staring out a window at best, just, it wasn't fulfilling to me. You know, it was fine. It was, it was good, but I couldn't imagine doing a lifetime of that. And so I started taking police department tests. Now, this is the late 90s where it was fairly challenging to get on. Mm-hmm. And the process is so long. Uh, it's still longer than it should be. And I think that's one of the challenges we have. But the process was so long to get on. And, you know, I was expecting it to be more immediate because I had no family involved in law enforcement. So I had no one to, to really bounce ideas off of or get an idea of how the process worked. But, uh, and really no, no friends, family, friends in law enforcement. I really had no connection to it, okay. but I just knew it was something I needed to do. And so it took about two years till I got an offer. And then I got multiple offers at once and had to decide I had the NYPD offer me a position in their academy uh weeks after philadelphia did but philadelphia's where i'd been for a few years uh i was as grounded there as anywhere in the country i had good friends and uh i had some family in town so i decided to stick with philly and uh you know i figured worst case i'll do a few years in philadelphia and move on either to a federal position or a state police position or something like that but mm-hmm. i i was always having so much fun when an opportunity came along i was like uh now's not the right time 25 years later i'm still here so yeah that's awesome usually people have uh at least one family member or somebody that they've they've talked to or bounced ideas off of so that's kind of unique yeah you you, like nobody at all you just kind of saw police in these different roles uh a good one you bring up like is about movies and tv shows i think of like family matters like the dad like the main one of the main characters is a cop Right. And you don't see that anymore where people, you know, like I don't think you'd ever see a cop in like a, a prominent role where he's intelligent. You know, now it's they're always in these movies and it's like they're the drunk, right? Six times divorced, right? Doing corrupt things. And that's all people want to see. It's like, yeah, that definitely hurts kind of the view in, in kids' eyes and, and people growing up, right? So that's a hundred percent. And and the reality is we know is that's just not the case. Yeah. You know, that's, um, you know, like, like I said, I had no law enforcement background or family members, but you know, my, my dad was big on service, you know, helping your fellow man out whenever you can. So while it was no formal law enforcement upbringing, it was about being service to your fellow human mm-hmm. and helping people out. So that resonated with me. Yeah. Uh, immensely, immensely. So, uh, in your role right now as a captain, what do you oversee? Like how many, uh, how many people do you have that you kind of take care of and, and what's your specific role as, uh, in the Philadelphia police? So it, in Philadelphia, your captain's rank, uh, can oversee anywhere from a hundred to 250 officers, supervisors. Uh, we, we're broken down into districts, mm-hmm. um, similar like New York is in precincts. We call them districts. Um, there are now 22 different districts in Philadelphia, uh, ranging in population size. I think the smaller ones are, let's say, around 100,000. Uh, some can be several hundred thousand people. Uh, and then our center city, our business area, while the resident population is fairly low, you know, we can have over a million people in that, in that district or division uh, during wow. the day with the influx of uh, business. So, um, my role is a little unique. So I've been elected to the local FOP, the Colonel Order Police here, our union, uh, for over six years. And we're so busy. You know, we service almost 14,000 members, uh, active and retired in the FOP. So it's a full time gig. So there's an okay. agreement with the department that, uh, uh, the majority of the executive board is on release and works at the FOP full time. So I don't have a command. Uh, right now, I've just been here uh, doing the work of the union. Okay. Yeah. So our association, uh, they have the full-time president, vice president. Everyone else is part-time, like any directors, 
secretary, treasurer. Right. Um, I was looking up some numbers here just to give some of the listeners maybe an idea of like how big Philadelphia is and then how dense it is population-wise. So like our city, Edmonton, is 680,000 or 680 square kilometers. Philly is 350. So about half the size of Edmonton land-wise, area-wise. Um, for Americans, that'd be 135 miles squared. <laughs> and uh, Correct, correct. Philly's population, though, is about 1.6 million. Correct. Is what it said when I was Googling this. Edmonton is just shy of a million people. So we're very spread out, not, not very dense. And like even when you see our city, there's, you know, the collection of tall buildings is all downtown. There's a couple little high rises, you know, spread out. But you look at a picture of Philly and it's just like towers everywhere. Correct. So, yeah, when you talk about like the districts, how it's broken down, even in Edmonton, we have six districts. So it's almost like when you look at a map, it's like a quarter of the city is essentially one district. Wow. And it's very spread out. Um, so yeah, Philly would be like, you have very small districts, but everybody's kind of stacked on top of one another. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Some of, uh, most of our neighborhoods are, uh, we call them row homes or connected. Some, some areas they call them townhomes, but the, mm-hmm. we call them row homes and they're just houses connected right next to the house next to them. And, yeah. uh, you know, on average three stories, some are four stories and um, some are single family, some are split up into apartments, but we're kind of right on top of each other in a lot of neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah for sure. So uh, one of the things I want to get into with you, and we had this prior conversation was just about some of the numbers with the Philadelphia police department. Um, Cause I think some of the numbers were pretty staggering when you look at the number of members you well have on paper, I guess. And then how many physical bodies you actually have there at work. Yeah. So can you get into uh, just some of the numbers that we talked about before, like total number of officers, how many are still there? Um, and then we could kind of get into the recruitment retention stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're allotted approximately 6,500 active officers in our department, in our ranks. That's what we're supposed to have, about 6,500. Um, we've been well short of that for years now. Um, and it's, it's getting worse. I'm hoping that pendulum is going to start to turn and we'll get into that. But, uh, so we're allotted 6,500. We're probably conservatively at least 1500 short. Then you take in consideration how many are out injured on duty status that we don't have, uh, how many they're under investigation that are pulled from the street. So I don't think it's outrageous to say that we're almost 2000 short, which is a really significant number. Wow. And, uh, with that, you know, a lot comes, it's, it's like a snowball effect. So now the officers that are on the street have to work more, they're forced more overtime, vacation's harder to come by, and they're doing more while they're at work. The, the radio call assignments <clears throat> for the average patrol officer, those numbers are up and they're being asked to do more and more. And, you know, and then special units, which was kind of in Philadelphia, the culture is you do your time in patrol. And you do a good job, and then a special unit spot might open up. There's something that appeals to you, and you can put in transfer for that. And uh, mm-hmm. you know that was kind of the carrot that was always dangled. You work hard in patrol for so many years, and then you can get a shot at a special unit. We just don't have the manpower now to afford big special units, and they're dwindling. And some of them are looking at you know being merged with others, and and so it it's it's a staggering effect. Uh, you know, when I got on in the '90s, in the late '90s. You'd go to roll call and you'd have four, you know, you'd have three, four ranks of officers with you. And now you're, and uh, that would be like eight per rank of, uh, in, in the lineup. Uh, now the average one, you might have one. If you have eight on a shift, that's good. Or eight at a roll call. Um, you know, we usually use mostly, uh, patrol cars. So the majority of officers in cars. Some will be partnered up, some will be solo, but we always, always had wagons, the big paddy wagons, mm-hmm. the vans that worked every shift. When I started, we'd have at least two every shift, sometimes three, and on great days, we have four. Now they're lucky to have one in the division, which is two, at least two districts combined. So, you know, that, and that's a huge issue when we have violent prisoners, violent uh, yeah. mental health issues, 
We just don't have the manpower to run enough wagons, and they're a really vital tool. And then you've, if you get uh, a prisoner that needs to go to the hospital, so your your one wagon's tied up. Mm-hmm. So then we're running short. So uh, yeah, we have it's a significant problem. You know, when I started our police academy, I started with 145, of which uh, you know over 100 graduated. We start classes now, or academy classes, with 30. 35 wow that is a massive difference yeah we had one we had one within the last two years that started with 18 which is unheard of considering we were over 100 for years yeah so our service up here we are about just shy 2,000 sworn uh officers any given time we have about 200 from what i understand last numbers i got there's about 200 off and that's everything from injuries to stress leave uh, mental health stuff. Like there's a whole bunch of things in there. Um, and it makes like 200 out of that is difficult enough. So that's, you know, 10%. You're talking about like a third of your service could be off or gone or have, you know, left. Um, and, and, you know, we have the same struggles to a lesser degree. Uh, we don't have any, so there's lots of overtime, but you're not, directed to come in on OT. I'm wondering, is the overtime that you hear about in the US, are these like actual departments telling people like you will work? Like you're going to get paid, but you have to come in. So, and this is the importance of the union, right? Mm -hmm. This is where we negotiate the contracts in, you know, now all departments are the same and other states don't have the luxury of uh, a a union that can argue legally for contract and, and labor. But here in Pennsylvania, we can. And uh, canceling days off does happen where you do have to come in. We have it by contract. They can only do it so many times and under such circumstances. What we run into more is uh, tours being extended. So it's more like, hey, you can't go home yet. Oh, okay. Like, I know you're scheduled to go home, but you have to stick around. Um, I, I truly believe our command staff does the best they can with trying to anticipate when this is going to happen. But we're a major city with major events almost all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if there's a significant incident going on, there's just we're at the point where they just don't have the manpower not to do it sometimes. But there are rules that they have to abide by to try and be fair to our officers. But this is this is part of the reason our ranks are so low, is our officers can go to another department, a smaller suburban department outside the city, usually make more money. And have a better schedule and don't have to worry about uh, their their tours being extended or their days off being canceled. Crazy. One of the things I wanted to get into was talking about just the casualties on the job. So people injured uh, or killed in the line of duty. I so I was looking at uh, Joe's social media and I'd seen that two. I saw two different things he had posted where it was like Philadelphia police had been shot, officers had been shot. Um, so I was looking up some news on that, trying to read about it, and I didn't realize it's like almost a daily thing where the cops are being shot at or actually getting hit. Um, and just in this last week or two weeks, it was just like one this day, two the next day, way more than is making like even headline news. Can you talk a bit about how many officers uh, or how many officer-involved shootings you might have like in the Philadelphia area, uh, maybe in a year, or do you have like any kind of stats around that? So, uh, nationally, cause Joe just put the stat out in January, nationally, we had 32 officers shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one every 23 hours, which is clearly unacceptable. I mean, that's just, and it hasn't always been like that. Um, in Philadelphia in 2023, we had nine officers shot over the course of the year. Uh, one fatally, we lost uh, Officer Mendez in October in a horrible situation. And uh, so nine is is too many, obviously, as well. Um, what are number of actual shootouts or police shootings? I don't have that number. It's fairly high. It's, uh, it's not uncommon. Uh, we had two officers shot in December in the highway, in the highway patrol unit that you mentioned earlier that I was in. Um, I'm first, let me start the story by telling they're both. Okay. They're doing great. And in fact, they are going to be here tomorrow for a meeting. We're having to donate money. They raised to uh, our survivors fund. Okay. But both were shot 
both were shot in the head in a shootout. There was over a hundred rounds exchanged. Um, the one officer, it was his fifth on duty shooting in his career. He's got about 10 years on. And this, the other officer, this is a remarkable story. This was his second time being shot in the head in the last two years, Jeez, which is not common, obviously, <laughs> but when he was at, at, at the, uh, trauma bay in the hospital the doctor came back and he goes this cat scan doesn't make any sense you have two wounds and you have three projectiles in your head he's like oh that's from the last time i got shot and the doctor was kind of like that doesn't make any sense what are you doing you know but thankfully they're all right um that guy can't make a case for getting a, like a kevlar helmet or something something right <laughs> I, it just or or getting transferred somewhere else <laughs> yeah. off the street but uh, we've had uh, four in the area, as we were talking earlier, uh, in the last week, we had a, an officer shot uh, just over a week and a half ago in the leg. Uh, he's okay. We had another sh- officer shot during warrant service, during narcotics warrant. Mm-hmm. It hit him right in the vest, which was good, and ricocheted off his vest into his hand. And then right outside of Philadelphia, uh in one of our neighboring departments, we had two officers that were responding to a 911 call and almost ambush style. And uh, they're both home from the hospital as well. So that's a lot. I mean, we don't usually have four in a week, but you know, it, we seem to be having more and more. I, we know for a fact there's a lot more guns on the street due to uh, our district attorney's office over the last few years and the prosecution of, 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 Criminals, especially regarding guns, has been very lax. And the result is more crime, uh, more criminals on the street, and a whole lot more guns on the street. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I think that's a good segue into talking about some of the politics around this. And as I was mentioning just before we fired up, one of the big changes we had up here in Canada was uh, the premiers of the province. So uh, equivalent would be your governors. Um, They all, like across the provinces, all got together. And went to the federal government and said, like, this is enough. Our communities are just terrible. There's people you know, committing crimes everywhere. Gun violence is through the roof. Violence in general, like even domestic violence, everything, it's gone way up. We need a change. And that was across all forms of government. So, you know, right from you know, whatever party you're in, red or blue, up here, it's kind of reverse of the Americans. <laughs> so, right, um, right. But right across, just kind of unified had a big meeting and pitched the federal government said, we need some change, real reform. Do you see any kind of change or anything on the horizon in the U.S.? Is anybody in agreement anywhere of how to fix things? Uh, I don't know that agreement is the word I would use because <laughs> okay. our political system, you know, red and blue, it just, it, it's, they're not getting the job done clearly mm. uh, on a lot of things, but, you know, specific to law enforcement, uh, you know, one of the things we do as a union, besides the labor, is we try and represent our members' interests politically. You know, when I got on the job, uh, we as a city, we would average four to 500 homicides a year. And then in the early 2000s, we had great leadership in the police department. We had an excellent district attorney, which is who's responsible for prosecuting all the uh, crimes. And we had a great mayor. And through a lot of hard work and sacrifice by our police officers and teamwork, we had the number uh, at one year was down to 242 homicides, which is still a lot. But by our standard, you know, we cut that number in half. Yeah. And the city downtown was a safe place to walk. You know, you could do your business was great for, for small business in the center city and tourism was good and people would come and feel safe. And then uh, kind of with the rest of the country in the last few years, uh, the political leadership's been very weak. Um, a rogue district attorney, who's what we have now, who refuses to prosecute, it, it seems, on almost anything, unless they're prosecuting a police officer, then they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll uh, it's, it's the re-arrest when cases against police officers have been thrown out of courts. They there's no history of them ever rearresting on these these crimes unless it's a police officer. Really? So we have a we have a high ranking officer uh, who was arrested and uh, and fired who is in his fourth year, I believe, and goes back again tomorrow for yet another try. And it's and the, our this district has lost at every level of court 
and continues finding ways to refile. And it's just, I mean, it's a morale killer, obviously. Uh, And then when you look at the amount of um, resources he's committing to this one case, I mean, clearly they could be spent better. Exactly. Being, being focused on real violent crime. And so our numbers now in the last few years, I mean, we, we we're around 600 homicides a year, you know, so we're double, almost triple where we were. And, you know, what's changed locally, the biggest changes are the leadership. Um, and so, so, but we've started to see that kind of change. So our governor, um, who is blue, he's a Democrat. Uh, he was the attorney general. So he was the chief law enforcement officer for the state before he became governor to his credit has worked with us and kept us in the loop and had sit downs with us. Like what can he do at his level to improve uh, the career of a law enforcement officer and how does he make the state uh, safer? And, you know, when he was elected governor, people were worried, uh, well, you know, now he had the support of, of the police. Is he going to put his money where his mouth was? And he has. And uh, so it's nice to have a direct communication line um, with him. Uh, and then locally in Philadelphia, we have a new mayor that just was sworn in in January. And she was in our city council uh, before that. And, you know, she ran essentially on law and order, which was kind of unique in this day and age mm-hmm. for a Democrat uh, blue to to run on law and order. And she was kind of like, we got to get our city back under control. We have to make it safe for people to go to school and go to work. And so we're, it's very early. We're still in the beginning. We're less than, you know, two months in, but, you know, her press conferences have brought a new energy that I haven't seen as far as a pro law enforcement energy to, to Philadelphia. So I'm, I'm optimistic, you know, if she does half of what she's promised to do, I think we're going to be better off. She's brought in a new police commissioner who used to be, uh, in the command staff of Philadelphia. Um, he's a high, high energy, intelligent, uh, guy. And I'm hoping between the two of them, one, we make the city a lot safer, but also we make it a better job for our police officers. I mean, the stress, you know, it's such a different game now than it was even 20 years ago. Um, retention is a huge problem for us. So I'm hoping that they can turn the tide on a few things, crime, and then the, the conditions of the work conditions for our police. Yeah. Do you, um, do you find, uh, and I don't know how much face time you've had with these politicians being fairly new to the spot you're in, but, um, maybe locally, even do you find the politicians truly understand what's going on out there. And, and I, I'll give some context because one thing I've done and tried to use this podcast to do is kind of cut out all the middle people. Right. And just go straight to the source. Like, Hey, if I, you know, if people are saying we need this rule change, this law change, whatever, why don't we get that person in, talk to them, but also get them on a ride along. And I know there's a lot of politicians who won't do ride alongs. I've found some pretty good success up here. I don't know what it'd be like down there, but do you find like, are, are they, um, kind of willing to come out and actually do a shift, see what the people see on the front lines. Cause my experience up here has been, it is an eye opener is a game changer. Like you can tell someone this is scary all day. You can tell them it's dangerous, but when they actually see it, they feel it. Like there's nothing like that. So has that ever uh, happened down there? Any ride alongs or are they doing anything else to kind of understand what, what members go through? I, I agree with you, first of all, 100%. Uh, the ride-along is an eye-opener. Uh, cutting out the middle people as much as possible is usually beneficial. You know, <laughs> yeah. Let's get the real decision-makers, the people, you know, so that they're not getting a watered-down version or a, yes. a rosier version of what the reality is. And to your point, uh, so one of my good friends was a, a prosecutor here in the city, and pretty good, and... Uh, one day he came out with my partner and we did, he did a ride along and his, I mean, he was very smart and pro law enforcement and knew what the job was, but he just didn't understand until he got out on the street. And he's like, well, why aren't you doing this and doing, I said, all right, counselor, what's our probable cost? Like, <laughs> I know what you see, but 
you know, what can we legally do here? What can we do the right way? And he just, he said, we still talk about it this day. We're very good friends. And he talks about how his mind was absolutely blown once you get out there. Um, you know, uh, uh, our new mayor, she's born and raised in the streets uh, here in Philadelphia. You know, she comes from one of the more challenged neighborhoods. And I think she's got a pretty good handle on what's going on out there. Um, Politician-wise, I don't know how many have done a ride-along. And I mean a real ride-along, not yeah. a how nice everything is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> let's, get, let's get the brand new police car that's never been used or crashed and put them in that. So I don't know. I think there's value to it a hundred percent, right? Because yeah, I, I see, even if you look at different national things, you'll hear a celebrity or athlete does something and there'll be kind of a stir, but then if it's on video and they see what's actually happened, then it's, then it's times 10. Oh, this is horrible. Well, that's, that's the reality. Sometimes there's horrible things happen, unfortunately. Um, and that's what we signed up to combat and signed up to to reduce. But uh, yeah, I don't think there's enough real ride-alongs going on. But they're a tremendous tool. Our department has always been pro ride-along. It's pretty. Okay. They don't fight you very hard on getting people in the car and, and going around and seeing it. Because Philadelphia is a great city. It's a city of neighborhoods, so you can be in one neighborhood that's very safe and nice, and five minutes later, you can be in a place that feels like a war zone. They can be very dangerous, wow. and uh, and most people from outside those neighborhoods don't venture in. And I think it's important for some people to see it, to go in and see what what uh, what the challenges are there. Yeah, you know, and you know, uh, I think you bring up a good point there, where it's it's about like the decision making. I think when they get out there and they go, oh, like that person assaulted that person. It's like, well, but there's elements to the offense, right? And like maybe it didn't meet it, and how am I gauging the crowd around and my environment and everything right. and making this decision, whether I'm going to go hands-on or use some other tool to get this person in handcuffs. Right. Then they start thinking, oh yeah, like that probably isn't a good idea. It's like, yeah, I'm, I have to make those decisions in half a second. Right. Like we're standing here and we're your bodyguards. It's all safe for you. <laughs> so right. it is nice to get them out there to see things. I feel like sometimes the politicians, I'll give them a little benefit of the doubt where um, I think sometimes they get swept up just like a lot of the public in the narratives and the headlines and they just kind of go off on this tangent. So even bringing people back and showing them like, hey, you know, you did a ride along with this unit six months, a year later, go on a ride along with this unit right. and just as much exposure as possible. At least that's my opinion for elected officials. Your, your public safety, your public order is like a top priority. You should be engaged with those services as much as possible. So paramedics, fire, police, like you should be out there doing stuff with them. Like it's the hierarchy of needs. You know, this is the base level. Right. If you don't have this, you're not going to have anything after it. Right. So. I agree a hundred percent. I think there's multiple benefits to it too. Yeah, they're getting out and see the realities of what's on the street and uh, how crazy it can be or how in desperate need some of these communities are of more help. But the other thing you're going to see is when you're doing that ride along with that police officer, just how good most of our police officers are. Yes. The situations they keep common, the decision makings that, that they make, you know, their decision making, you know, what what can they legally do as opposed to what what can't they do? And that, you know, nine times out of 10, they make the right decision. And to your point, we have a few seconds to assess, make a decision and implement that decision. And, you know, when I talk about the prosecution of police officers, it's four years, lawyers and attorneys and, uh, and judges are still trying to decide if that four second incident was just or not. Yeah, exactly. You know, this four years by, <laughs> by alleged great mi legal minds, it's taken them four years and we get four seconds. And I don't think people get that, right? When we talk about politicians or the public in general, you know, it's just so crammed into such a quick decision usually. And then the other part is, uh, you know, we know as law enforcement officers, what's the whole story? You know, if you just go up to a disturbance between a couple or something, there's, I used to always say there's usually three sides to the story, your version, 
their version and what really happened is somewhere in, in the middle there yep where the general public i don't think understands that nuance where the general public's like oh no no he said this and this is what happened we have this six second video clip this this is obviously terrible meanwhile we know that there's usually more to the story let's get context let's see let me see the whole video clip let me see everything that happened let's get the whole story before we start making decisions on who's right and wrong and i think the general public especially now more than ever when everything's instant gratification everything's instant yeah you know they make quick decisions and they 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 don't really put a whole lot of thought into okay is this accurate or not i think we've made people lazier uh like 100% it's they're not seeking out the information um it's it's clickbait it's headlines uh you're going to read the big thing like the you know police shoot somebody it's going to be in the first two lines of whatever the article is you don't know if anybody even reads the rest of the context to it um yeah there's we've made people lazier in seeking out like real information and learning about this job uh and you kind of mentioned community there uh when you look at the news in the u.s all you see is just communities on fire and people right. rioting and, and things going on uh do you find in your travels or the people you've talked to is that the general consensus are people saying we don't want police in neighborhoods is there any neighborhood that actually says that or is that mostly special interest groups of politicians just saying that and they get the camera time so uh i think you're gonna not be surprised at this answer so if you talk <laughs> about the clickbait you're 100 right you know our local newspaper which was a major newspaper in the country for years and it was pretty good you know they kind of took the bait uh i would say ever since around when the Fer ferguson missouri incident happened uh they became fairly anti-police and anti-negative or anti-law uh, enforcement and every article every title is you know police officers shoot male yeah they leave out the part that male just shot three people and then shot the police officers yeah you know, it'll it'll just <laughs> that kind of and like you said the public's gotten lazy with it but i love this story that paper hasn't done very well and they used to have this big prominent building in center city that was their headquarters well i love this irony because they have since had to sell that building and is now the location of our police headquarters so we now occupy the building that they operated out of so recklessly for so many years and it's now our building so i love that little <laughs> irony that little yeah that little jab we can give to them that uh, we're still around and they're not but so yeah the clickbait things and issue so the community so i'll say this uh when the baltimore riots after freddie gray's death happened uh which was several years ago i was a sergeant in one of the toughest neighborhoods in philadelphia like a really tough neighborhood there was no rioting in Philadelphia for that, but Baltimore was was burning down. And I remember going to get a cup of coffee and somebody holding the door for me. He's like, you all right, Sarge? I said, I'm good. He, I, he goes, this ain't Baltimore. Like, we got your back. This is, And this is one of the toughest neighborhoods I'd put anywhere in the, really? in the country, honestly. And it's not Baltimore. We got your back. Like, listen, there are nefarious people. There are bad people in some of these neighborhoods. Most of the community's absolutely fine. Just people with different life circumstances that don't have the the advantages some of us grew up in. But you know, the people that aren't doing what they're supposed to, the criminals in the crowd, of course, they're going to be anti us and they're going to combat us and try and use everything they can. But most of the people in these communities, they're not with them. They want to be safe. They want the same things we all want. Mm -hmm. You know, to live in a safe, clean environment. And to be able to walk down the street without worrying about being robbed or shot. So, you know, in those honest interactions, when it's just you and there's no cameras and you have these interactions with, with most of the people, I found them supportive. And, and you know, and then after the, the riots uh, in a few years ago, I mean, Philadelphia riots were bad. There's no way to sugarcoat. It got really, really ugly. And our, our officers went through a lot. I mean, it was career changing for some of them. It was really, really bad in certain neighborhoods. But in the days following, when we still had to have a huge presence in those neighborhoods, and then we were out as the union supporting our officers on the street, making sure they're fed and have something to drink, and, you know, uh, doing the best we can for them. You know, I was back out in West Philadelphia where I'd been a, a police officer, I'd been a patrolman, and I'd been a detective out there. 
again, another really, really tough neighborhood. But I'd be out on the corner and just talking to the officers, checking on them. And then people in the neighborhood, like, we're so sorry about what happened. And it, it wasn't them, right? It was the that 10% of nefarious individuals that are causing all the problems. Um, we're sorry. We're, how did this happen? What can we do? Are you okay? So, yeah, take the cameras and the politicians and a lot of the way. If, if the people that live in these neighborhoods could have honest, more honest conversations mm-hmm. and with the people that patrol these neighborhoods and that the politicians would just listen to that exchange, we'd be a lot better off. And, you know, that the, we want less police, we're over-policed. My experience is normally it's people that live out in the suburbs that don't need a whole lot of policing, that because they live in very safe communities are the ones telling these people that are stuck in these tough neighborhoods what <laughs> yeah. kind of policing they need which I find hilarious and maybe yeah, they're speaking for people they have no business speaking for. Right. The most arrogant racist thing you could possibly do is sit in your million dollar home and tell people that are trying to make rent, what kind of policing they need. Mm. So yeah, that's so, but, and you know, uh, social media and most media as a whole doesn't really help because it's just another version of clickbait. So you'd be like, man, United States burning down. You know, or this the city's falling apart. And I would always tell people, look out your own window. What's your own, what are your own eyes tell you? What's your your actual experience, not what you saw on your computer or your phone? Yeah. And it's a lot better than what we think it is if we just get but I think that goes into the mental health of police officers, why it's so hard. Because uh, you know, we're all on our phones, we're all on social media, whether we want to be or not. And so it's a 24-7 negativity in a lot of times for law enforcement and the younger officers who've been brought up in this, in social media being your form of communication, I think it's really taxing on them mentally. Yeah. It's certainly a different experience across generations. Um, do you think, so what would the, what's Philadelphia looking to do when it comes to recruitment? Cause I, I see what, you know, in Canada, uh, every single service is basically going across the country, trying to recruit people from other cities. Um, like it's it's a battle to get recruits and you're fighting every other service, even the federal services. So what is Philadelphia? Um, they got any kind of strategies for recruiting people? They have strategies. Uh, you know, you're exactly right. I think the younger generations who we pull from now, um, it's been such a difference from older generations, how, you know, how you grew up, what, what was out there for you. Um, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, when I was younger, you know, there was no social media. So if you wanted to be a part of something, you were on a sports team or you were on a club or there was always something you had to do something physically uh, and meet with people face to face to be part of a, a team and get that camaraderie. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the younger generation hasn't had to do that. They've they've had camaraderie through their phones with other people and. So if you look at service industry across the board in the United States, law enforcement's down, uh, nursing is down, uh, professional lifeguards, all these service industries, the military, it's all down significantly. So it's not just us. Uh, You know, Philadelphia is trying different strategies, but, you know, my personal argument, and this is the belief of the national FOP, that recruitment is very important, but retention is even more important because Mm -hmm. if there's a hole in the bottom of your cup, no matter how much you pour on the top, if people are, are leaving out the bat, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're never going to get up to where you need to be. So, so retention, how do we change that? Well, number one, we treat our officers better. You know, we look out for them more and, you know, pay is important. I mean, money's a reality for everybody. So paying more is great, but how are we treating the officers in day to day? You know, what's the discipline structure like for years when there was people lined up at the door to become Philadelphia police officers, if there was a job that went sideways or there was some question to it, the commissioner at, at the time was on record saying it was, listen, it, to be in the interest of keeping the community happy and everyone, I'm just going to fire this officer. And then the union can fight for the officer uh, in court to get their job back. And then they'll probably get their job back. But at least I can say, okay, I took action against this officer. Well, if you're firing people, that shouldn't be fired 
you're showing that you don't have their back. Yeah. And it's not just to that officer, it's to everybody that they've worked with and everyone else sees it. And that's like, well, you know, we all make sacrifices doing this job. Our families make sacrifices when we do this job. And it's hard to, to want to do those, make those sacrifices when you feel like, oh, we're going to let you go because this might be a problem. Mm -hmm. So that leads in our retention. So, so we have to treat our officers better. I think our command staff is starting to understand that. Not all commanders, but some are starting to get like, we got to treat them better to keep them. Um, you know, there's bonuses out there, but you know, this is my argument for anything. I mean, let's treat the other departments as our competition. If all you're doing to try and beat your competition is, is copying what they do and doing the same thing, that's not a winning strategy, right? So there are bonuses now being offered, but I can, I can point an hour and a half down the road where they're offering a double the bonus we are for signing. So I just, I don't know how strong a strategy the bonus structure is or mm -hmm. make it a great place to work and people will come, you know, we're a giant city with huge events that has every possible special unit you can imagine. You can get into anything, whether you want to fly helicopters, yeah. uh, command a boat, you can, uh, you know, SWAT, canine, narcotics, you name it. We have it here and we get great events in 2026. We're hosting the world cup for a month. So we're gonna have the world cup. We're gonna have major league baseball, all-star. We have everything that comes with our sports teams. We have every concert you can imagine. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff that happens here. So create a good work environment. Yeah, this is the place to be. I mean, I've been here 25 years Yeah, and I was never planning on being here more than five. So get them in the door and treat them right. And, uh, you know, I think the rest follows, but that's clearly easier said than done. Yeah. Well, so maybe kind of on the FOP side um, and doing some of the lobbying and, and fighting for members, where do you think, uh, like, where's most of your fight occur? Where does most of the, the talking and, and the lobbying occur? Is it um, like in your position now, I guess, because you're national, is that going to be in Washington or are you mostly in the state? Where do you kind of operate and what are you working on? Uh, a lot in Washington. Yeah. yeah, mostly in Washington. There's a couple bills that we're trying to get passed um, at the national level. One is the Protect and Serve Act, where if you willingly assault a police officer, uh, someone that you know to be a law enforcement officer, that the, the federal government can now step in on the prosecution and you're now subject to federal government prosecution. Okay. Um, and you would think that's kind of a no brainer, but it's, it, it's harder than you think to get it passed. Joe works very hard on that. Uh, in the United States, we have Social Security, and it's a, a fund. Essentially, if you pay into it your whole life, then Social Security will receive checks when you retire, depending on the amount of money you contributed. Well, 40 years ago, uh, public service employees with a public service pension are now penalized. So even though you contribute the same amount of money to Social Security, you're not entitled to the same amount of benefit when you retire because you have a public pension being, whether it's law enforcement or a teacher or any public, oh, okay. which just isn't fair. So yeah. we're, we're giving you our money and we're not getting any money in return. So we've been battling for that for years. We're closer than we've ever been, but it's, you know, I can't tell you definitively that we're going to achieve it anytime soon. So uh, that's some of the national stuff we do. And then uh, also just on, Education, we do a lot of education for our smaller uh, unions on labor and how do we argue, how do we make the, the life of a police officer easier and get them better benefits. And so, but Nashville, we're in DC a lot. We have a, our national headquarters is in Nashville, Tennessee, but we have an office in Washington because we're there so much. One, um, maybe on that national kind of aspect, uh, I've seen like a few tweets, maybe, maybe some stuff on LinkedIn. Just talking about um, some people, I guess, were mentioning like having like a national standard for policing or like a national police service kind of idea, maybe like the RCMP in Canada. Right. Um, I, I could never see that taking hold in the US. But do you think is you know, when we talk like training and standards, having things standardized to a certain degree, is there any kind of consensus on like maybe statewide? So per state? Everyone should just go to one academy so we know you're all trained to the same use of force standards and the firearm standards and driving. Or is that like, 
that's just like never going to happen. Everyone just likes to do their own thing. That's that's a really good question, and I, I think you're right at a national level. It's just the you know the way the United States Constitution that the government is set up is that it is the United States, even though it doesn't always seem like it. So, yeah. state rights and state individualism is very important, and I agree with it because Pennsylvania is different than Wyoming. It just is. Yeah. Um, in Pennsylvania, we have state uh, we have a state board that is comp- uh, municipal law enforcement officers police officers board, which is comp- which is composed of officers from around the state, and they set the standards of what your training has to be every year. So every law enforcement officer in Pennsylvania has to do training every every year to maintain their status to be a state uh, a police officer within okay. the state. So there are standardized requirements, training that are done. Uh, same thing with the police academies. They're all essentially uh, have to meet the same standards, pass the same tests. Um, now that doesn't mean some academies aren't harder than others. They definitely are. Um, so in Pennsylvania, we do have like a state standard system. Uh, one of the things we actually, uh, rallied behind, uh, with criminal justice reform was in Pennsylvania, you know, nobody wants bad cops on the street. Cops don't want bad cops on mm-hmm. the street because you don't want to have to work with that person. They're going to put you at risk. You can get hurt with them or whether it's physical risk or financial risk or career risk, nobody wants to work with bad cops. So we help you. You'd see some officers that aren't fit for the job would bounce from department to department. They'd get in trouble in one department, get onto another one. And what do you know? The same things are happening. with you. So uh, there's a state uh, ruling now that, that there's a list so that to help prevent that. So we don't have bad officers jumping department to department. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and you know we, along with the with the state government, were behind that. We thought that was a sensible reform. Um, and by by supporting the things that make sense, when we say, "Hey, this this reform you're talking about doesn't make any sense. This is no good. This doesn't help anyone." Uh, they'll listen to us more. So that's that's important. So, uh, but I think it's important that individual regions at least if not police departments have their own academy if they're able to because policing in philadelphia is different than policing in the middle of the state you know geographically it's different population is different and when i was in the academy they push community norms so we have some neighborhoods where there just isn't enough parking mm-hmm. right for one example so they tell you in that neighborhood, don't worry if cars are early it's just it's been like that for 100 years there's only so many spaces for so many cars. There's a community norm there of that neighborhood makes it work with how they do parking. Let's ease on the parking enforcement. On that. Yeah. And I think the, the bigger your, your regions are where you're setting up academies, you're going to lose that individual community uh, influence and knowledge where you learn, okay, this, our community is a little different. So we're going to police it a little different as opposed to somewhere on the other side of the state. Yeah, I find uh, like the debates about all this national stuff uh, and even state to state or for us province to province, very interesting because uh, I had a previous guest on here, Kevin Sear, and he's one of the commanders with uh, a SWAT team uh, in British Columbia. And he wrote a really good paper on the militarization of police. But part of that was uh, was comparing U.S. and Canada and the U.S. has something like 18,000 uh, police services or law enforcement agencies. I can't remember the exact uh, definition of it, but uh, Canada has about 180. Wow. And that's because the RCMP is in municipalities right across Canada. There's a huge push right now. There's a lot of debate back and forth, and this is a very politicized issue now. Um, should that national police service, the federal police, be doing frontline policing? Um, so everyone kind of equates them to the FBI. They're not the FBI. They do functions that they do, but they also do functions of like the ATF and the DEA. Like right. they're kind of a lot of things all in one. People are now asking, should we be doing that? Uh, the province I'm in, Alberta, is kind of like the Texas of Canada. Okay. What a lot of people describe it as. Yeah. <laughs> so they're very... Um, no, we, we like doing our own thing and we want to have our own provincial police that's come up lately. So like an equivalent of a state police, uh, there's been more municipal services popping up with their own police. Some of our, uh, reserves, so our 
indigenous uh, First Nations people, they are creating their own police services in certain areas because it's more community-based. We see this debate. It's right across the country. And now you're starting to see it kind of pop up. At least I've noticed it more uh, on social media in the U.S. So um, I think it's probably going to be a big, big debate for you guys down there for a while. But yeah, and even national standards, they talk about things as far as use of force. Like an assault over here is an assault over there. So can we have the same use of force um, kind of standards or the training? So there's even debates about like a, like a national college to truly professionalize policing. And well, was part of that debate was like, hey, if you're going to do that, like, then you're going to start paying police uh, as much as doctors because right. they're going to be real professionals. Like, so it's like, well, then who are we letting in? Right. Right. So what do you, th- what's your take on that as far as uh, nationalizing or what's the average Canadian police officer feel about that? Are they, or is there a general consensus or does it depend on who you ask? Uh, it's the, it's different province to province. Yeah. Uh, municipality to, you know, one city to the next. I, there's, there's benefits and negatives to both really at the end of the day. And lately we've seen, um, so the RCMP, their biggest detachment was in this city called Surrey. Um, and Surrey recently switched to their own municipal police. And it is like the biggest headache in the news. It's the mayor, the mayor has their own plans, but they're fighting against the province who has their own plans. Um, I don't know where it's going to end up. It looks like Surrey police are going right. to stay They're They're there now. Um, but I couldn't imagine that for like every city that wants to switch. And then the provincial police and it's just constant back and forth. It, it's so politicized. Meanwhile, all the people on the front lines <laughs> doing the job are like, I just want to go and do my work. Like, I don't care. Right. <laughs> so, right, right, right. But I, if I was putting money on it, I think eventually the RCMP is going to go toward the federal side, putting more money into that, pulling out of some of the communities. It's just that some of the communities uh, are very remote, um, especially in our northern region. Like, right. you have 100,000 people in like this giant, just open area. Um, they also, one of the issues that came up was some of the areas don't have the population to draw off of. So when you look at the populations in in certain sections of of provinces or the territories, um, there's a lot of fetal alcohol syndrome. Right. There's a lot of like issues within families. Like you couldn't, the people might not be uh, able to even be police officers, but even if they did, you're not, you don't necessarily want to send the person back to their community to police because right. it's just arresting your uncles and your family. And yeah, it's crazy. So there's a lot of different considerations, I guess, for us. I don't know if it'd be the same in the U.S. with that necessarily, but it, it's 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 a legitimate point. Like just within Philadelphia, you're not allowed to to work in the district you live in. Okay, right? But like that's yeah, kind of that on a much smaller. Just to avoid that, like you know, it's one thing uh, to be part of the community, but if it's your neighbor. That maybe you have an issue with maybe you shouldn't be policing that or don't you know what i mean in case of favoritism or yeah the conflicts of interest right you know who what's the population you're drawing from do they have are they a large enough population to provide enough qualified candidates to be in law enforcement mm-hmm. yeah it's I, I i don't think you're gonna see a push like a, a significant uh push for i know there are some people that don't really understand law enforcement in the united states that have mentioned that i just i don't think it's a good idea here because again going back to how important just knowing what your community is and knowing you know we try in philadelphia we try and draw our our police department our ranks from the community that we serve so until 2010 you had to live in the city and be from the city essentially okay to get to get in the police to maintain that so that it's a reflection of the community you're serving. Yeah. So, and I think that's important and that's, uh, I know I, you know, sometimes now we have people from all over and a lot of them do a great job. But sometimes they'll come for a couple of years and be like, this isn't really the right fit for me. And I'm going to go to another. 
Yeah, I think a lot of it too comes down to the the dollars spent on the dollars spent on the priorities. So when you look at our federal police, they're responsible for like international stuff, you know, transnational organized crime, right. cartel level things. But when they're spending only, you know, two cents of every dollar, just as an example, uh, on that stuff, and you know, sixty cents of every dollar is in community policing. It's like you're the only organization, at least in Canada, that can has the money, the budget, and the resources to fight, you know, this large level organized crime. Right. So we need you doing that, not necessarily community policing. That's what some of the debate has come down to. Where, you know, what are the priorities for each service, for each community? Where's the money and and who's doing those functions? So yeah, I think I think at least in Canada there's gonna be a lot of change coming in the maybe the next 10, 20 years. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. How much resources can they contribute to the international, the significant threats and where a lot of the our crime stems from is is what comes in through our borders and then, you know, the yes. threats that come in through there. And and uh, you know, we have you know, we have a nice partnership with the FBI and the ATF and the DEA, where we're a large enough department in the city that we have uh task force created that have been around for years. So we have officers from our department detailed to those agencies mm-hmm. so that they get the intel and the experience of our street officers while maintaining the power of the federal government, where they have the ability to go do long-term investigations, uh, go all over the world, wherever the job takes them to. So, and I think that's a model that, that seems to work. And what's good for us is, you know, when we have a, a prosecutor here, that's not really interested in prosecuting criminals. If it raises to the level of a federal crime or falls within that, then yep. we can take that avenue. And, and that's been a powerful tool for us for, for several years. Yeah, definitely a lot of power to having good partnerships. That's critical. So right, we're just coming up to the end of our time here. Uh, I just want to make sure uh, we get a chance to say just any kind of upcoming projects with you in particular, um, any stuff coming down the pipeline that people should know about. Oh, there's always stuff. There's always <laughs> stuff going on. Um, so right now in a few weeks, well, a couple things. Um, in two weeks or less than two weeks, the national FOP, we hold two significant conferences at our national headquarters. One is our officer wellness summit. And we're really trying to focus on, you know, when we talk about wellness, physical is important, right? Trying to maintain, uh, maintain your body, keep in as good a shape as possible, improve your diet, which is a real struggle now for everyone. Um, (laughs) But we also talk about mental health. Like how do we keep our officers healthy? Um, One of the things I ran on nationally that's very near and dear to me is mental health with our police officers. In the last two years, we've had nine Philadelphia police officers kill themselves. Wow. And we have a lot of great programs that in conjunction with local universities, with our healthcare benefits, uh, the department has been great about trying to provide help to police officers. Um, but clearly nine is unacceptable. It's not even close to enough. So what can we do? What haven't we thought of? Like, wh- what do we do to keep our officers mentally healthy? And I touched on it earlier with the phones and social media. It's 24-7 for our cops. And it's mm-hmm. it's really hard on them. So I've worked with some close friends, uh, uh, some some guys that you would thought we're on top of the world and that we had some very honest conversations where they told me how at one point they didn't see any other way out, but to take their own life, which was heartbreaking because these are some of my very best friends and I had no idea. And we all know we've all lost somebody to suicide where you had no idea. And then you think, what could I have done? What should I have done? How did I not see it? Mm-hmm. So, uh, we've been working on, uh, a program where we're going to utilize technology and create a system where they can just scan a QR code and then it's going to give them about a half dozen exercises that they can do at home. Uh, and it's going to talk about what the exercise does, why it's beneficial, um, not just physical and mental health exercises, uh, stuff such as meditation, control breathing, journaling, mm-hmm. stuff that in my day and age, no one ever talked about, obviously, that you'd never think to do, but stuff that really works. And the big benefit to this program that, as I see it, is I think our number one obstacle to getting our officers the mental health help they need 
Is all the programs we have in Philadelphia all start the same way, though? The officer has to admit and ask for help. Mm, okay. And as law enforcement, we are the help, right? That's how, who, how we identify. We're the help. We don't ask for help. We are the help. Yeah. So this is something so that, so that officers can access this treatment, treat themselves, it maybe get to the point where they can, they can ask someone, um, someone else for help, but at least get the treatment without having to start by saying, I need help. They can just say, you know what? I'm having a tough day. Let me see that thing that the national FOP has out there. Let me just take a look at that, see if that helps. So we're launching that, uh, at the wellness summit, really excited about that. And then we hold a leadership matters, uh, summit, uh, the days after that, just trying to promote leadership within the union, within our police departments. You know, how do we take better care of our officers? How do we empower them to have successful careers and and, uh, and long extend their longevity to the career? Hopefully, um, so we have that coming up, and then a week after that, we'll be in Washington, uh, rallying with the International Association of Firefighters to get these benefits as, that I was telling you about okay, earlier. Yeah. Get our fair share of the benefits. Uh, also the protect and serve act we're going to be pushing for that uh you know it's an election year so the window is closing until the election gets completely out of control and takes over washington so we're trying <laughs> to get that all done before that starts and uh and then here in philadelphia we're uh you know looking at new partnership with the new mayor and the commissioner and improving the life of police officers here in philadelphia making it safer getting the city back on track and getting prepared for uh, the upcoming years with all the international events that are coming. You know, I talked about how low we are. We already know we're having over 400 officers retire by the end of the year on top of how short we are. Jeez. And we're bringing in, if we get 300 new ones a year, so we're going to be at a bigger deficit next year and we know that, but, you know, trying to come up with strategies to combat that and get more and more people in and hold on to them. Well, if you need a few uh, officers down there, I'm sure I could find a few of the, the boys will <laughs> come down and help out. Yeah. <laughs> come on down. Philly's a great place to live. We got the beach an hour and a half away. Yeah. <laughs> we got some mountains not too uh, We call them mountains. I don't know that they're really mountains, but we got some hills not too far away. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. Every, every, come on down. I'll vouch for you. We're, yeah. We'll take you. Um, so just at the end here, I want to make sure you get a chance to say how people can follow you. Where can they find you? So social media, websites, anything in particular? Uh, I mean, I don't have the presence Joe does. I just kind of ride his <laughs> coattails a little bit, but, uh, no, uh, my, uh, my information's all on the national FOP board, uh, yeah. email, phone calls. I honestly, I'll take a call from anybody and email, uh, love to help, love to talk. And I'm sure I can learn stuff from, from up North a hundred percent. So. It just whenever we combine to get our heads together and start coming up with things, it's it's always a uh, positive. Yeah, good stuff. Um, I'm just gonna remind listeners: uh, just share, like, comment, help spread the message, get this out there. Because uh, yeah, we're just trying to help people and and come up with some good ideas and, and be creative and kind of collaborate and you know use these partnerships as much as possible. Because even in Canada see a lot of the same issues as in the u.s um some of them start up here and go down there or vice versa but uh yeah no make sure we kind of help out and uh spread the message so um thanks for coming on today john thanks for having me real pleasure i appreciate the time and uh looking forward to working with you more in the future go flyers <laughs>